When a child is diagnosed with a serious life-threatening illness, the entire family is affected. These stories from those families, especially when faced with challenging decisions, will move and inspire you. The parents are courageous and resilient in their determination to keep their family strong. Courageous Parents Network promotes their insights so that others may also find hope and strength. Welcome to the Courageous Parents Network podcast series. While we are called Courageous Parents Network, we know that parents come with their own set of parents. Enter the grandparents, who can play a central role in helping to support the entire family. In this podcast, CPN's Blythe Lord talks with Carla, the mother of Talia, who had infantile Tay-Sachs and died shortly before her second birthday, and Robin, Carla's mother. Theirs is a particularly close relationship, which we recognize is not always the case. But the grandparent relationship is often central, and we are honored that Carla and Robin joined us to talk about it. I'm here with Carla Steckman, mother of Talia, and her mother, Robin Lynn, grandmother of Talia. It is just a real pleasure and privilege for me to talk with you here, officially for Courageous Parents Network, but I will also acknowledge that you have both become friends of mine. Carla, you participated and contributed to Courageous Parents Network in many ways, including that conversation we did on anticipatory grief. You have written for our blog, and Robin, you have now also contributed to the CPM blog with your perspective as a grandmother, and you're both loyal and very generous donors. So for all of these reasons, I thank you for being here. We are officially here to talk about the mother grandmother relationship and what that experience was like and continues to be like for the two of you, even after Talia has died. I do want to flag at the very top of this that you have a beautiful and I would say exceptional relationship. You are very, very close to each other. And this is not true for too many other people. We'll acknowledge that for many people watching this or listening to this, your truth may not be what other people experience, but it is your truth and it is a beautiful thing. When you think about Talia, what are the words that you would use to describe her? Beautiful, gentle, loving, like the letter B, curly haired, soft, Mm -hmm. quiet. She had very expressive eyes. From her first moment of birth, we locked eyes, and I thought, these eyes have, they stayed blue for the longest of all the kids. They just, they always had such curiosity to them. Watching that vibrance in her eyes dim, I think was, was a real challenge, because you can see a lot of her personality. Robin, when Carla called you with the diagnosis, I know that Carla was keeping you apprised leading up to that. What were the things that you worried most about once you got the diagnosis as it relates to Carla and her family? How do you survive? How do you survive something so cruel and mean and and unexpected and terrifying? How will they do it? I know I said on the phone that night, I will be there. I meant mentally and physically and spiritually. I said it that night, you know, whatever happens, I will be beside you. 
And when I told her of the diagnosis, it had been after two days of us knowing the probable diagnosis and I withheld from her because I wasn't ready to make that public yet. We were waiting for one more test to fully confirm, but I also, I didn't want to let them in on it yet. And I remember in that first reveal, I had already sort of figured out a way to present it and manage my own reaction. And I said, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be brief. It's not going to take up the entirety of our lives, which was a fear of other diagnoses. And I think I even said in that moment, we can mourn for a day, but then we've got to get together and do this. I think I was afraid of my parents falling into a pit of despair when I had already steeled myself up, even though I didn't really know what was coming ahead. But I knew that I needed everyone around me to have the energy to focus on it and not wallow. Hearing you describe the buildup, what I hear you saying is you thought very hard about sending a message to your mother about the tone you wanted to take with all of this. And you were cueing her for how you wanted the family to be thinking about it and doing that. Did you do that partially because you were trying to protect your mother from her own grief? Certainly. My parents are wonderful helpers. They find solutions to things. And here I was presenting us with a problem with no real solution. So I worried about both of their ability to be in that. But my mom and I specifically have a, we talk about emotional things and we we talk about stories of other people's tragedies frequently and, and sort of, we like to put ourselves in other people's shoes, I think, and picture the world through their eyes. And now we were in possession of this terrible story. I worry just like I worried for myself. I think I see a lot of myself in my mom. And so I certainly worried about my parents' emotional ability to handle it because we hadn't ever been through anything so serious before well thank you for worrying so much about me it's your it's your daughter it's it's for us you said that for us to worry about you yeah i wanted to control the blast since i knew i was the epicenter talia was the epicenter Mm -hmm. i thought she was like holding a hand grenade and and i needed to control the external blast and you guys the grandparents were in that blast zone. And so I wanted to do as much proactive controlling of the universe as possible. But I, I think my mom did remind me repeatedly, like, this, this, is, this is your, you are at the center of this. Stop worrying about me so much. Robin, do you remember feeling like Carla is telling me how she wants this to go? So I, I'm taking my cue from her. I'll give you the biggest cue she gave me. She said, don't cry in front of me. Yeah. Ever. I did pretty good, Carla. She said, this, this will upset me. Watching you be upset will upset me. I don't think I stopped crying for a year, but I never cried in front of Carla. So that was, you know, I wanted to do what would be best for her. I could, I have plenty of people I can cry in front of. I can cry all by myself, you know, I mean. In those first few weeks, you called me a lot, a lot, a lot. And then you said, I only feel good if I'm with you. Safe. I said, I only feel safe. I only feel safe if I'm with you. I want to be with you. And I said, well, that's just not going to work for me. (laughs) You can't. You can't be with me all the time. You're not moving in. The way that I was going to survive was to maintain my life as normally as possible. And that includes my privacy. I mean, I had a, you know, I had a mental calendar in my mind. So I wasn't there physically, but I was... 
I was aware. I would check in and check in and check in. And then I got to ride the Metro, the Amtrak from Penn Station. I got to take the, the 810 Adirondack. Believe it or not, you go to Montreal on this train and people presented their passport at Penn Station. Oh yeah, I always found very funny. And you know, I'd call Carla from Hudson, New York. I'd be 18 minutes away. I mean, she'd pick, you know, pick me up. I, I rode the rails. Carla, did you say to your mother expressly, this is how you can help me? How did that go? In terms of physical visits, I have to give a strong shout out to my mother-in-law who lived closer and with whom I have a, also a wonderful relationship, which is also, I know, not necessarily a typical thing. But she had already been coming once a week before Talia was diagnosed to just give me a break because I had two older children. And so she continued those once weekly visits. So I knew that I had that break. And I'd say that my mom and I saw each other every other week in person, but we spoke daily. I, I would say the biggest support that she was to me was tracking me from afar, was always being available. So that when I even was out of the house shopping for shoes or something or in the grocery store and I was overcome or just needed a distraction, I would call her, she would always pick up the phone. And she would maybe start asking me about how I was doing. And I would say, that's not why I'm calling today. Mm. Tell me something else. Talk about anything else. Tell me about my new nephew. Tell me about mm. anything. Mm. Or sometimes I would call and that would be the only thing I'd want to talk about. And so she was responsive to me and, and didn't try to lay too much on me. She, she listened and followed where I needed the conversation to go. Carla was calling half the time from the bagel shop and all I'll be calling and she'll say, no, with cream cheese. And we'd go back to talking about funerals. It'd be, it was, it was jarring. I got used to intimacy in strange places, but, if, but I, I didn't care. If Carla wanted to call me, you know, I'll, I'll be there. I think at this moment of coronavirus, I think we all understand that there's a great deal of uncertainty we live with and mortality is on everyone's mind. And so it, it feels these days like what I lived through was not quite as rare as how it felt when she was first diagnosed because the whole world now understands a little bit, a little bit of, of what it is to be afraid and to live with tension. Mm -hmm. I just, I think it wasn't until after Talia died that I looked back and realized that my shoulders were at a perpetual up by my ears and there was so much tension that I lived with. Mm -hmm. And I would say my mother served to offload some of that tension successfully uh, sometimes. There were times when I would call her and I would get off and say, like, that didn't work. <laughs> she had, she had her own, whatever, whatever it is you had read. Sometimes you tell me stories of other people and I just, you know, I, it, it's just not what I need in that moment. What, if anything, did you do to try to figure out how to do this? Be a grandmother to Talia. I was just a grandmother. I wasn't, I don't think there's a different grandmother to children who are well and children who aren't well. I mean, I think you hold them both. You know, I talked to Talia. The same way I talked to Nathan and Audrey, you know, I gave her a bath. She had a, an inflatable ring around her head. The others didn't, but she was enjoying her bath every bit as much as, you know, the other two. I guess the difference is that I thought more about Talia than I thought about 
Nathan and Audrey as they were growing up. I thought about her all the time. I thought about the disease all the time. I started giving myself a course in genetics. I have no science background whatsoever. I jumped into the subject area. Carla was on my mind and therefore Talia was on my mind always. And it's five years after her birth and we're still talking about her. It's, uh, I can talk without crying, but she is there in such a significant fashion. Robin, because you are curious, you're a voracious reader and you are a problem solver, what were you doing to try to be helpful to Carla? They talked about getting a dog. I jumped all over it. I, all I had to hear was one little, little bark. And I was like, oh yes. Oh, what a great idea. A dog. I'll find the perfect dog. I can find a breeder. Where do I find a breeder? Oh, let me let me look for that. And just tell me the breed. What what breed do you want? And it, the goal. I was all set to. We're all set for a golden doodle. And then who was that actor? He got a different type of dog. I and we were watching the Westminster Dog Show, and then we texted you. Actually, we've decided we want a cockapoo, and you just said okay. <laughs> and then you went oh. and did that research all over again. Yeah. But that dog's part of the household now, and he's a neurotic cockapoo, and he's, he brings joy. Here's an example. The NTSAD conference in Dallas, it was 2016, that we went to. First, Carlo said, I'm not going. Okay, okay, okay. Then she said, and I'm going, and I'm going without you. Said, okay. And then as we got closer, she said, would you like to come with me? I said, okay. And, and so, you know, I just kept, I did, I kept my mouth shut on that. That was a huge help. And it was such a big deal for me to figure out whether I wanted to be in a, in a space with other affected children, how terrifying that might be to me, whether I could travel by myself with Talia because David and the other kids were going to stay at home because they didn't want to have to multitask being with them. I was all set to do it by myself. I'm a go-getter. I can do it by myself. And then it just felt like, well, why? Why do I, why do I need to do that when I have, I believe I can do this better with, with my mother. Mm. And then I was terrified that my mother would speak too much or embarrass me or like, it was a whole different, I, I was concerned on so many different levels. And the first day that we got there in the elevator, my mom is great. I, I get nervous talking to people initially. She's a, she can engage anybody. And you talked to somebody in the elevator and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And we got off the elevator and I looked at you and I said like, I think I want less of that. <laughs> and I think, I think I need, I, I think I want to be the one to maybe start the conversation, but like, but I needed you nearby. And I did need you to introduce to a certain extent, like you, you provided that, that first hour of transitional help. And then, and then I think I found, I found everybody and I, and then I didn't need you as much. And then you, you took a step back. Yeah. It was very, very helpful. It's beautiful what you're saying. Um, and there are lots of stuff that's coming up in my mind, listening to you, Carla, I sort of hear your mother was like your transitional object. Like she, <laughs> I'm an object. You helped Carla feel safe. 
And then she didn't need you in the same way as she got more and more comfortable with people. And you, Robin, just knowing what role you needed to play for Carla and having it be about her needs and not your needs, it's very beautiful. It really is. What you learned through all of this was how incredibly strong your daughter is, but one could argue that you also learned how strong you are. What did you learn about yourself as Carla's mother and Talia's grandmother? I think ultimately I'm a planner. I plan ahead. I think you can, I thought that you could take care of the future by planning it. I realize now that you can't. You're, you're, you're at the whim of circumstances and happenstance and as much as you can think that you're in control and you're planning, it, it's not the case. So does that mean that I plan less today? No, I probably plan more, you know, thinking like, I, no, wait, if I really get ahead of this problem, I can, I can nip it in the bud, knowing ultimately that it's not true. I like it, what happened to Carla to, to the Greek tragedies. When one knows one's fate, one does everything possible to avoid that fate, and yet it befalls you. And we were tested for Tay-Sachs disease. Carla went to be tested. We did everything, we did everything right, and it befell us. So yeah, I have used that analogy to Greek tragedy before. And yet in Greek tragedy, people, they survive. You told me that pretty early on. And I, I, I hated that analogy and, and continue to dislike it, but that's okay. We can have different opinions. <laughs> I remember at the end of Talia's life, I think I went back into a protective mode over you because I was seeing her day by day and I saw decline and it was scary, but somehow it was, it was mine. So I was going to be okay, but I was afraid for you to see it. I was afraid the whole time through her life that you would be so affected by it that you would, you would have a depression for the rest of your life. And you always said to me, Carla, I am, I am stronger than you give me credit for. And it proved to be true. You, you were present. You did not cry in front of me. And we continue to be able to, to talk about her and make her a, a part of our family's legacy without dwelling, without being too darkly affected by her life and her death. But, but it was a perpetual thought of mine that somehow you would, I think it wasn't just you. It was, it was everyone around me. I was worried for my husband. I was, I was worried for my in-laws mm -hmm. that, that it would drag us down to the point where we were drowning underwater. And so I was the puppet master who was trying to like make sure everyone's heads were above water at all times. I never felt that on top of everything else that you were encountering that you should be a puppet master. But you raised a planner. So I'm the planner. So that was my plan. My plan was to make everyone else survive. It's also a way of having control when this other thing is completely out of control. If I can't control this, then I'll do my best to control everything else around it. Yeah. Well, the things that you cared about, right? The thing you care most about is your people, the people that you love. Mom, you experienced real loss. You lost both your parents at, at my age now, right? At 38, 39, 40. And I, I think I remember asking you 
quite a lot to talk about what that is. And I remember one conversation specifically where I said to you, like, I don't know what to do with all the love I have after Talia is gone. And mm. you said to me, do you remember what you said to me? You said after my mother died, I didn't know what to do with all of that love either. Mm. And that love remains. Mm. And, and I put it into, into us, into your children. That, mm. that love was there and she was gone and I put it into you guys. And, mm. and so I needed to take that love and put it back into my other children and into the rest of my life. And, and it continues. That's beautiful, Carla. Well, you said it. That's very beautiful. Oh, no, it, when you said it, it's, it's, just, it's just beautiful. I love you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, what a gift that you guys both just gave each other. But I've never been depressed, Carla. Why do you keep putting that label on me? Here's why. Because every time you look at the world or books, you go to the darkest and most depressing of any topic. What's the theme of the article or the book? You know it's that moment. So I go right to it. What's the whole point of what the person's writing? They do all the prelude and you know the aftermath, but it's the big moment. So I go right to the big moment. I'll work on telling you something insignificant like, I read about a beautiful blossom today. Don't change. If we're going back to how grandparents can be helpful and kids can be helpful, I think we all work best when we don't expect each other to change the core of who we are. Just because this massive trauma entered our lives didn't mean I wanted to change everything about myself. I was still gonna view the world with sarcasm and humor and, and be direct. I didn't want my mother to change who she was. I didn't want her to turn into only talking to me about light and fluff and distraction. I, I wanted to talk about the real stuff that we had always talked about. It's important that you honor who you are and not allow the circumstance to change the core of you. Because then you're left at the end with a different person. You can change because circumstances will shape you. And I am a deeper person because of having parented Talia, but I'm not changed, you know, in, in whatever that means. I can relate far easier to other people's tragedies. I have empathy for loss beyond my small circle. It's definitely, definitely changed me. You did tell me a story of your father who was in the hospital and you said to him, dad, are you ever angry? Because we spent a lot of time being angry at this missed diagnosis or missed carrier screening that led to this diagnosis. And you said, dad, are you, are you angry that you are dying, basically? Are, are you angry? And his response was, I said bitter. Are you bitter? And his response was, about what? So, yeah. I mean, I think I, that story, that story was helpful to me. And yeah, she said, you, you, deal, you deal with the cards you're dealt. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, just absolutely a realist, you know, to the core. I have this image in my mind that, Robin, you are a collector of anecdotes and stories, That's and that you would collect them and you would serve them up to Carla and she could take it or leave it. That was part of how you helped. You just collect, offer, Carla takes it or doesn't take it. Yes, that's a terrific analogy, except sometimes I was offering up the wrong story. Yes, well. Or at the wrong time. Better than not offering anything. 
the two of you started having conversations about making arrangements for what would happen after Talia died, the funeral and or the memorial service. Can you talk a little bit about that? The, the first conversation was we were walking with Talia in the stroller to the yeah. strawberry patch. Yes. And we were almost back home, which I think it was four miles we were walking. And I told you that your father had extra plots at the family burial area, which was at that point two hours south of where you lived. And, and you said, I can't see her being so far away from us. I do remember actually that you were the one who first brought up these logistics because you're a planner. It took a few starter conversations before I let it rest in my mind and get to the point where I could then start to think about planning it. And, and I think I remember the first few conversations, I was not very happy to be brought into those ideas. Because yes, you did have a very, you had a very clear idea of what you thought would be the best for her. I hadn't started to think about it at all. So of course I was immediately offended that you had put thought into it. Yeah. And then of course we ended up going with your plan because your plan as, as almost always, you know, I, I, I think it through, I go in a full circle and then I go, I mean, it was, it was what my mom suggested before anyway. It was having months and months allowed yes. us, all of us to think it through. And as you know, your, your in-laws had strong feelings against cremation. I, I was very afraid personally about the size of the coffin. I just was so terrified about the image of that. And therefore of that image hurting my other children or disturbing the people around me. And so for a brief second, I thought about cremation, which in the Jewish tradition is, is very, is not usually done. And my in-laws very strongly asked me not to, given our legacy, their legacy specifically with um, the Holocaust. And, and so that seemed like an easy way to honor that. I wasn't seriously contemplating it, but it was enough that they, they had strong feelings about it and I would never, I would never make a choice that was specifically against someone else's wishes. It just seems hurtful. Well, Carla, you also didn't, as I recall, you didn't want any children and you knew your friends would come with their children. You didn't want any children to have to be in the presence of the coffin. Yes. And so I, I guess this is how I, had, with my mother, I had had a, a funeral and I had a memorial service, a, a memorial program. We had divided the two. Ultimately, there was a graveside funeral. I thought it was beautiful that our, your brother brought his three children and your cousin Bill brought his two pre-adolescent children. Family was there, not friends with children, but family and family with children was there and Carla spent a lot of time on the gravestone which is which is beautiful which reflects Talia. When you are parenting a child who's dying it's a particularly unique situation and one that is very eligible for a lot of fraught encounters around the grandparent parent advice situation. My mother has a strong history of planting a seed of suggestion making that seed into like a bullet of suggestion. It just sort of infects you and then you're like, I think I have an idea. But it, it was her, it was, it, it almost always is her. And she's usually right. 
even my husband, we go back and we're like, I think she was right. I give her credit, but no, she definitely, she's okay suggesting things and I shut it down. And then eventually I come back around. But if you hadn't come around, that would have been okay too. It's okay too. I, I agree. It's never... But, I, but I'm not rabid that we must take that suggestion. No, I, no, thank you for that clarification. Absolutely. When we go in a different direction, she's fine with it. I'll say that for, for this disease specifically, because we were learning it all at the same time, because my mom wasn't in on the medical doctor's appointments, because my husband is a doctor, I spent some time trying to teach her about what was going on with Talia. And therefore, decisions around her care were, were never coming from the people around us, aside from my father-in-law, who is also a doctor, with whom I would discuss feeding tube questions, whether to put one in, whether to not. And he's a gastroenterologist, and he's had experience, many experiences, placing those tubes in people at end of life. And so he had strong opinions and, and was very comfortable talking to me about them. And I, I welcomed those conversations. I welcomed almost all conversations. I know that that's not everyone's personality, but I think I needed to gather as much information as possible. But in this area specifically, my mother and I, I, I wouldn't say that you were at the forefront of, of making a suggestion about her care specifically. I really had no medical background, I had just about no opinion on medical care because what knowledge did I have to offer any opinion? None. You struggled with the idea and value of prayer. Did you and Carla talk about that? Not necessarily your own relationship with it or what you were struggling with, but did the two of you talk about prayer at all? We talked about the mourner's cottage. Carla has a deeper spiritual life than I do. And I think you're going to Yom Kippur services, Day of Atonement services throughout. I was angrier than Carla throughout. And that's perhaps what has dissipated. Carla focused on Talia and giving her the best care possible. And I wasn't with Talia and have been angrier for a lot longer. I questioned the value of prayer, but I never stopped questioning the value of prayer. Does that mean I'm praying? You know, moving closer to prayer, moving further away. What's the value? Why am I doing this? I'm going to services. Why am I going to services? You know, what does this prayer say? Why do they say it? You know, I'm not going to say that. I think, Carla, you always, you always approach prayer far easier than I did. For me, I think it both made me feel much more Jewish since this was like the, the Jewish disease and also like a, like a betrayal of Jews since, since carrier screening has led to almost no Jews getting diagnosed with Tay-Sachs anymore. When I revealed Talia's diagnosis to other Jewish people, either I felt guilty or I felt accused in, in the sense that they said, well, we got tested, so our kids are safe. And I thought, well, so did I. My family's background doesn't have a specific link to the Holocaust, but I, my husband's family does. And, and his grandmother is, Talia's great-grandmother is still alive and uh, was in Auschwitz as a child. I don't think I had to waste any time wondering why me, because we have a, we have a history of why, why anyone, why, why, why does suffering happen? And why has it continued to happen among our people and so it felt hypocritical of me to have shown up to services 
the year before Talia's diagnosis and said these prayers of suffering may happen to these people, it may happen, you don't know. And then to not show up the next year just because now that person is me. So I actually feel like it has deepened my connection to the Jewish people and perhaps to the prayers that get said every year and have gotten said every year for eternity. My belief in God is a whole different thing, but my belief in our people and our history is stronger now. Oh my God, I love that answer. What you just said. It feels very true for me too. The the relationship with suffering. It's almost like once it happens to you, it makes you more human. You become part of the history of the Jewish people, but just the history of people. Suffering is part of the human condition. And now we are more human because of it, because it's happened to us. It's been three years since Talia died. What does your family do, if anything, to recognize special days? And what, what are those special days? This continues to be a hard one because I think my mom continues to read my cues, but my cues are confused because I sometimes want her acknowledged on the day that she died, on her birthday, and I sometimes really don't. Since her death, I feel even more protective of her. She's just, she's mine now. I know she's not just mine, and I'm glad that she is carried in all these other people. But also, I don't want my internal emotions to be intruded upon by other people's emotions. And that's sort of selfish sometimes, and and yet I'm allowed to be selfish, I know that. So I think this upcoming, this most recent day of her passing, my mom said, do you want me up there? Do you want us to do anything? And do you not? And I think I said not, or I had my own plan. And I don't know whether that hurts or not. I honestly am never sure when to bring her name up and when not to bring her name up. We don't live far from the cemetery and we have, my host Larry and I have gone down there just the two of us, you know, we took a walk and we said hello. It was, it was nice. It's complicated. I have that feeling from the date of her death to the date of her birth is, is a month. And it's, it's just a complicated month. Mom, am I right that sometimes you call Lolly, my mother-in-law, and you guys talk about her or you talk about her on that date? Or Lolly calls me. We definitely were shared equals, and we are closer. Well, I mean, we maybe would have been closer anyway, but we, we enjoy each other. And certainly at the end of Talia's life, when Lolly was taking care of her, you were in Denver with Nathan and Audrey at the end of the school year. I didn't want her to be alone. And so I went up to her home, and we it was hot day, and we sat inside for, you know, for two hours holding Talia, passing her back and forth. And that was a very special, it was a very special moment. We were, the three of us were a bond. It was beautiful. We would hope that our children would gift us with the ability to be closer to each other. And I think we all were close to begin with, but I know that it, it deepened all of those bonds. Well, I mean, we, we had no dissension, medical dissension. It's not like one family wanted A and the other family wanted B. I think that would have been very hard. Very hard. I mean, we, we medically, we were all on the same page. 
we had four wonderful engaged grandparents. My mother was my emotional health. My father is a lawyer. He was my legal help, my search for what is right in this world. Lolly was my physical and also emotional help. And Michael, her husband, was our medical help. So we were well positioned with support in all four vectors. Everyone wanted to be involved. Everyone had something to offer. I mean, I think everyone always has something to offer. It doesn't have to be as lofty as being a doctor. I think being present and following the needs of the people at the very center of the trauma and being flexible is really all you need. I don't think we would have made it through in as good condition as we did if they weren't there. And also to provide support for my other two healthy children who needed to know that love continues, fun can continue, adventures can continue, and that also terrible things happen at the same time, and that's okay. We don't need to run away from it. One of the things, Robin, you mentioned a few minutes ago is you have two other children. I was thinking about how this thing was happening to one daughter, but you're mindful of your other daughter and your son and his family. What role did you play in managing communications and checking on what impact Talia's prognosis and what Carla was going through was having on your other two children and their families? Carla, you have a good relationship with Alana and Dan. I never felt like I was the, the bee carrying information from one to the other. I don't think you would have even wanted me to be that person. What I think was nice about them was that Carla and her family's needs rose to the very top of the pile, and they were supporting characters off in the wings. We had a nephew born just after Talia's diagnosis. So there was a family event, there was a bris that we all showed up to, and that was a great challenge in multitasking emotions for, for me, but it had to have been for, for my parents, and that was challenge, I think. Yes, but but I, I mean, I would just shout out to Carla's personality because we were at the Briss. Talia is with Carla and Carla says to her brother, looking at his healthy child, Dan, your joy is our joy. It was just so beautiful, Carla. It's so beautiful. My sister, after she had her baby, she asked as we drove away from the hospital together, because I was there for that, she said, like, is this hard for you? And I said, it's not. Your joy only brings more joy to the world. What's hard for me is seeing other family members struggle with infertility. It's hard for me to see people struggle in situations that you can't control. But a new joyous face in the world, that, that doesn't detract from me in any way. It, it builds the joy that exists in the world and that joy seeps into me. That says a great deal about you, Carla. And I'm gonna ask a provocative question that I hope does not offend you. Do you think your ability to be as loving and generous was partly because you already had two healthy older children? In my situation, absolutely. They were a very clear example of why I could not lose myself to this disease of why I had to show up and be present and be positive. They gave me a vision of what survival would look like. If Talia herself couldn't survive, then it was my job to make sure the rest of us did survive. And it was my job to make sure that Talia's siblings were not warped by the experience in terms of being overly ignored or overly doted upon. 
they had to remain as they were, which is one of three of my wonderful children. It helped because it gave me a vision of what the future would be, which I think is hard to picture when it's your first child and you're not sure. It took away some of that uncertainty as to what comes next. I, I knew what was gonna come next. They were already there. I've met a lot of families now and I don't think it's the essential key to being able to maintain a positivity and a focus. I've met people who, for whom it was their first child and they still, they still maintain as well as we all can. Part of what allowed me to make it through in the way that I did is that I was always raised in an emotionally healthy household, which I know is not always necessarily the case, but I was raised in a household where it was okay to speak your emotions okay to ask for help, okay to joke with each other about dark things, and okay to rely on each other. I just doubled down on all of that. Like, I have to just shout out that you have the capacity to ask these difficult questions because you know that's what other people are asking themselves. And I'm really in great admiration. I met a woman recently for whom her son is her first. And she asked me like, is it helpful having your other two? And I, I answered, yes, it is. And she said, I just, I just can't even picture it. I wouldn't picture it being helpful. This is all I want to focus on. This is all I can focus on. And so I don't understand that other experience, but also I would say having other children was helpful up until the very last month of Talia's life. Mm -hmm. And then I just wanted my focus to be on her. And I, and I felt like any distraction was more amplified than I wanted it to be. I would have been happy just focusing on her. I have, Willie, only one more question. And that is, both of you have written memoirs about this. Both of them are yet to be published, and I hope that changes. Can you talk, both of you, about the role that writing has played for you in processing and healing, if it has been a healing activity, and what it has been like to read the other person's version of the story, because that's not typical. I thought if I could linger a thousand feet in the air and look down on myself, I could remove myself from the, the horror of the present. So I kept a journal and I started writing. I, I have published two books, so I, I like writing. And I thought, well, I'll just observe myself because writing is an observation, but I'm not poetic. I'm more of a journalistic. That's why I did it. But Carla's impressions are totally different than mine. I didn't really start writing until later on in Talia's illness. I started to do a blog maybe once a month, maybe, maybe twice a month, just as a space to both scream and let people know that even though terrible things are happening, I'm still a human and I, you don't have to tiptoe around me. It was a way of cueing other people as to how to talk to me. Mm -hmm. I'm not a hero mom. You don't have to avoid me because it's all too real. This is something that happened. Now that you know what's happening over there, like just you can come up and talk to me as a regular person. And then after Talia died, my middle youngest went off to kindergarten and suddenly my house was quiet. It just felt like if I didn't start writing then, that I was just gonna lose the memories. And I didn't want to lose the memories. 
So I wanted to write, it started out much angrier than I think the book has ended up. Partly I just wanted, I needed to process some anger about misdiagnosis or missed uh, carrier screening, but also about the world's approach to other people's tragedies, human interest stories and how absurd they are. I am more introspective, I think, than my mom. So we did write similar things. And, and in fact, initially, we, one of the ideas she planted in me was maybe we should write a, a joint book. I just had to process it myself. I just couldn't, I couldn't figure that out. In addition to, to a mother-daughter relationship, I couldn't add a co-writer relationship and processing grief relationship. It was like a little, it was too much. So I wisely said no. And then when it came time to read each other's work, I think we were both terrified. <laughs> I, I think I was terrified. I didn't know, know necessarily whether things would be inaccurately represented or whether my husband would hate my mother's interpretation of our life. She's a fair viewer of the world and she wrote about her experience, not my experience. And she's a beautiful person. Carol wrote a love story. She wrote a love story between herself and Talia, whom she carried for two years. It was just a beautiful view and reminiscence of motherhood and Talia. Yeah. Your, yours was big and mine was, mine was focused. And in some ways, that was what the experience was. Exactly. You were there every moment. And I came in and out. We wrote the only things we could write. You could not have co-authored a book. Even, Carla, if you had said yes, it would not have worked. You wrote two very different books. You each wrote the only book you could write. As a reader, I'm really glad that you both wrote the books that you did. And I really hope they both get published one way or another. Well, I hope Carla's gets published. And if mine doesn't, I'm happy to send it to anyone who wants to read it. My goal is to have it read by the people whom it will help. If you had to give advice to a fellow grandparent called you up and said, how do I do this? What would you say? What advice would you give? Be available. Be emotionally available, physically available. Find something that creates a spark of joy and build on that. Use your friends as your own outlet for your grief and listen to your child and know that it will take just so long to get through something that will never go away, but you will smile again. Also, if I can, respect the silence. If the person at the center, if your daughter or son is not reaching out to you, respect it to a point. There are sometimes times when input is just too much. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.